0: Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is a show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. In this episode, I took to Heather Staff, the co-founder of Street Group, a UK-based B2B SaaS company that's modernizing the real estate industry and the process of moving home. Heather and her co-founder and brother, Tom, founded the business in 2016. When Tom realized how much manual work his father was doing to run his real estate agency in the UK, he decided to build a software solution. The only problem was that Tom didn't know how to code. So he brought a book to teach himself PHP and started figuring out how to build a solution. What Tom created for his dad was pretty basic, but it made a huge difference to the business and saved his father a ton of time. After seeing what Tom had built, Heather decided to join him and see if they could sell the product to other real estate agents in their area. Today, their business does over $9 million in annual recurring revenue, and they have a team of 85 people, and the business is 100% bootstrapped. In this interview, you'll learn how Heather and Tom went from zero to over 800K in monthly recurring revenue, some big mistakes they made along the way, what Heather would do differently if they were starting over today, and why they chose not to raise funding and bootstrap the business instead. So I hope you enjoy it.
1: Heather, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Do you have a favorite quote, something that inspires or motivates you, or just gets you out of bed that you can share with us?
1: Yeah, I think one of my favorites is actually from Ray Dalio, where he says, in order to be successful, you have to you know, be an independent thinker and, and bet against the the consensus, if that makes sense. And that's something that's always sort of resonated with us because when we started the business, a lot of people said, what are you doing? It doesn't make any sense to me. And, and you, have to, you have to back yourself thinking, yeah, okay, we might be in the minority, but, you know, independently thinking you'll hopefully strike success.
0: So tell us about the street group. What does the, the business do? Because it's not just one product. Who are the products for? And what's the main problem that you're helping to solve?
1: Okay. So in Street Group, we've got three main products. We've got two prospecting products. So we build tech for estate agents in the UK. So prospecting is basically a marketing tool. So it's tech to help them market themselves. And then we have a CRM or a state agency software, which is called streets.co.uk. So we have the prospecting systems, which are Spectre Sales and Spectre Lettings. And then we have streets.co.uk, which is the CRM.
0: And can you give us a sense of the size of the business? What are you doing in terms of revenue? What's the size of the team?
1: Yeah, sure. So we're doing just over 600k MRR at the moment, uh, actually slightly higher across the group now, so probably closer to 650. And we've got 85 people at the moment with quite a few in the pipeline due to join soon.
0: The 600k MRR is pounds. That's pounds, yeah. So let me just do my quick conversion. That's that's about 800,000 in US dollars. The interesting thing is that you founded this business with your brother, Tom. And you basically put no money into this to get started. So tell us about, like, how did you come up with the idea for this business? And then how did you go about getting started?
1: Okay, cool. So yeah, me and Tom are brother and sister. And I guess the first thing to say is that both of our parents had their own, and one of them still does have their own estate agency businesses. So We sort of grew up, had our entire childhood surrounded by estate agents, basically, or real estate agents, you call them in the US. So we knew the industry inside out. I'd spent every summer when I was a kid and, you know, through university working in my mum and dad's businesses. And I sort of followed a different path and ended up going to work for KPMG for 10 or so years. Whereas Tom was always, you know, he set up various businesses and did a few things. And Tom spent some time in my dad's business doing some consultancy work for him to try to implement tech to get them, well, basically into the 21st century. And it's while he was there, he spotted something that they were doing manually, which was basically marketing in a very, very manual way to try to attract more business. And in a nutshell, Tom thought, I'm pretty sure I could develop this into a product. So he spent his evenings essentially teaching himself to code and built what is now Spectre, which is the prospecting tool. And uh, yeah, he built that tool himself in his evenings and On Christmas, I was home for Christmas, and he showed me what he's built, and I thought, "Oh my God, that's brilliant! That's absolutely brilliant! It's going to save hours of somebody's time every day." And and I was like, "Yeah, can I can I come on board? I think this is going to be huge." So Tom was like, "Yeah, okay, let's do it." And as you can imagine, everybody in our lives were a bit like, "Built what for who to do what?" But but it was brilliant, and it worked. And we obviously had the luxury of being able to test it in our dad's business, and we knew it was generating him instructions, and that's what matters for estate agents, you know. Tech that works, easy to use, that generates more business.
0: Had Tom built anything before? This was the first time nope. he decided <laughs> to go out and learn to code and build a product?
1: Yeah, he's just got one of those brains. He just bought a PHP textbook and thought, I'll give it a go and did it. And I mean, he looks back now and he jokes about how awful it is. And, you know, it's now been essentially rebuilt. I'm not sure there's much of his code left, but he did do it and it worked. And it was a very simple system, but it generated results. How long did it
0: take him to build that, that first version of the product? And what was the experience when he started using it with your dad's business? Was this like something that immediately, I mean, if it automated what they were doing manually, there were some benefits there, but I'm trying mm-hmm. to figure out at like what point did this become? Oh, here's a tool for dad to run his business better to, wait a minute, there's a business opportunity here.
1: I think he tested the concepts basically at the start using Excel and a few other things and thought, yeah, okay. I could actually automate some of this, started building it, got it to, to run and um, generated. It ge- actually generates letters, the prospecting tool. The end product is letters and postcards. So he did that. It worked. And then as soon as he knew it worked for one agent, there was absolutely no reason why it's not going to work for every agent. So at that point, we sat down and we wrote physical letters. We just picked some agents in the northwest of England and wrote to them and said, look, we've, we've developed this tool. We've tested it. We think it works. Would, would you like to beta test a new product? And an amazing amount, of, you know, proportion of those agents actually came back to us and said, yeah, we would. We'd be interested. And that was essentially the start. And then, yeah, looking back, it was, you know, version 1.1. It wasn't the most sophisticated, but we quickly built on it and carried on building. And as with every tech product, what it looks like now is very different. But that was the version one, basically. Had
0: either of you run a business before that?
1: Tom had. Tom had run uh, an inventory business, which is related to the property industry. So he'd been doing that for a few years. And we both set up sort of little businesses whilst we're at university, but nothing particularly serious. So this was the first one where it really took off.
0: Now, most founders, when they build a product like this, and they're thinking about how to go and get their initial customers, some of them are going to build a landing page and try to get Google ads to drive some traffic there, or they're going to build an email list and try to do cold outreach or a whole bunch of other things, I think nearly all of them wouldn't think about doing direct mail and handwriting letters. So why was it that that was the route that the two of you decided to take?
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair question. Well, the first thing is it was a new product in a new category. So it wasn't like estate agents were Googling, how do I automate this? Or they were doing it very manually. They literally most agents back in the day used to have people who would drive around the streets and they would spot state agency for sale boards and they would write down the address and then they would manually market to those properties, which probably wasn't great for the environment either. But that's what they would do. So we knew that agents weren't searching for uh, a prop tech or a tech tool to replicate that because it probably well it didn't exist until we built it. So Google and the traditional you know avenues we knew weren't going to be as effective for us. But also, we didn't want to choose a channel, a marketing channel that was already saturated. Like There's a famous book called Traction, which is all about trying to pick a channel that your competitors or other people in the industry aren't doing. And direct mail at that time, um, seven years ago, people were all about digital. And we just thought, you know what, we'll just do a handwritten letter. And hopefully, it will catch their eye. And the beauty of estate agency is most estate agents are small, independently owned businesses. And so if you write to the owner at an address, it could hopefully get into the hands of the decision maker. And that's exactly what it did. And we just spent hours and hours into the night, you know, handwriting these letters and sending them. And then once we knew we got the response rate that we were hoping for, then we, I remember it was a massive decision for us to try and uh, buy an envelope, a stuffing machine, which we called the Dragon. And we found one on eBay. We went and we picked it up from somewhere like two hours away, drove it back and That was the first big purchase we made, but it enabled us then to send out a lot more letters. And we were getting, you know, around a 5% response rate, which if you think about the cost of a letter, it's barely anything. So we just carried on doing it because it was working.
0: You weren't building this product in the 1990s, right? This was like (laughs) 2015, 2016. So why do you think this was still a market opportunity? Like, Why hadn't anybody gone out there and tried to solve this problem before? I mean, obviously, I don't know what the right answer to this is, but what's your your opinion on this?
1: My view is that the estate agency industry as a whole had been a little bit neglected from a technology point of view because you don't get a lot of agents. The, the crossover and skill set between estate agent and uh, developer is actually pretty rare. So there weren't a lot of people in the industry who I think had the skills that were in that industry to to then go out and build a product to automate something. So I think that was part of it. And then I also think, The estate agency industry has got a bit of a bad rep. Well, it's definitely got a bad rep in the UK. And uh, some of that comes from people thinking that industry is simpler than it actually is. Estate agents, good ones, do actually do a lot of work and can add a material amount to the the amount that you get for the sale of your home, which is typically somebody's biggest asset. Um, So I think there were a lot of people who were sort of outside the industry looking in thinking, I can build tech to solve this problem or this problem without necessarily knowing what it was like for an agent day-to-day on the ground. And that was something that me and Tom knew inside out because we'd grown up with it. And seven years ago, almost half the number of people that put their property on the market switched estate agent before they managed to sell. So even that, most people outside the industry wouldn't have any idea that that was a thing that people did. But we knew that it was really important for good estate agents to keep in contact with people who were on the market because if their agent let them down, they probably would look to switch. And that's, again, something that you have to sort of be in the industry to know. So I think it was being in the industry and knowing what agents needed and then having the expertise with Tom to actually build something to solve that problem.
0: I think the UK is a very unique market in terms of real estate. And I've experienced that in buying and selling a home in England, buying and selling a home in the US, and they're completely different. So I think even a a US company that's in real estate would have a, a hard time figuring out how to navigate through some of the differences and challenges that you get in the UK.
1: Oh, absolutely. It is complicated. And uh, you do want somebody who knows what they're doing to manage that for you, would be my advice.
0: So once you got this response from these handwritten letters that you were then using this dragon to to send them out, (laughs) what would you do next? So somebody replies and says, yeah, I'm, I'm interested. How many people did you start getting to beta test the product did you charge them right away or let them use it for free? What was that process that you went through?
1: No, we charged them straight away and we were actually really expensive because what we did, so we went out and the, the first few, we met them face to face and we sat down with them because they were all near where we were based at the time. So we sat down and we showed them the product and then you could visibly see them getting excited about it. And you'd walk out. And I remember the first one I ever did uh, was actually in London and I walked out and I'd n- never felt so happy. And You know, when you build something and somebody's excited looking at it. And I remember meeting a friend in the pub and I was like, I can't believe it. They absolutely loved it. He just signed it off. So we knew we were onto something from the reaction of the agent seeing it. And then we used a strategy of being exclusive to one agent in one agent per area, basically. So if you were that agent and you saw Spectre, you could secure your area straight away if you signed up and started paying straight away. And because we were bootstrapped, that was incredibly important because A, we were able to charge a premium price. B, the sales cycle was incredibly short. You know, they would hear about it. They'd see a demo same day and they could be paying an hour later. And that is typically what they do. And some of them would land grab. They'd be like, well, I'm planning on opening a branch in the next town. So I'm going to get that as well. And So that just fueled this huge growth for us, which came with its problems further down the line. But that's how we grew initially, basically getting in contact with agents via direct mail. And then a lot of it came from word of mouth. So, you know, we'd go out and we were exclusive. So one agent would say to another agent in a non-competing area, oh my God, you need to have a look at this because you want to secure your area before somebody else does. So that word of mouth actually spread pretty quickly.
0: How much were you charging them?
1: So we charged back in the day, £39 per postcode sector per month. And a postcode sector is a small subsector of a postcode. So a typical agent would have probably 10 or more sectors. So you'd be looking at 390 ish pounds a month for them to secure their area. And that was seven years ago.
0: Got it. This sounds like a very low-tech operation. And I I love that because in in this business of building products and software, we have this, a a lot of founders have this tendency to overcomplicate things and the hand letter approach is great but then when it came to actually getting payments how are you doing that
1: well yeah i guess in one way you could say we were low tech with our marketing but in everything else we employed every bit of tech you can imagine so we automated everything we could from a back office point of view we obviously used things like xero we from day dot we integrated with go cardless so everything was paid by direct debit so when the agents signed up, they signed up to a direct debit. The payment was taken automatically. They paid monthly in advance, which again, from a bootstrapping point of view, funded everything because payment in advance meant we could fund the growth. So all of that was automated. The invoicing was automated. Collections were automated. Once they'd signed up, it was a case of giving them their login details and doing a, a an hour's training call and off they go. So And then we used as much tech as we possibly could in the background. So yeah, everything we could to make sure that we had as few people as possible. And we relied more and more on tech as we grew.
0: How long did it take you to get to your first 10 customers?
1: Probably about two or three months, I would say, maybe two months.
0: That's a pretty strong signal that you're onto something there.
1: One of the first ones was a huge agent actually that has 16 branches and they're still a client today. And um, we'll never forget that because he took a massive gamble on us for such a big company. So we've, we've tried to look after him ever since.
0: Okay. So you got to your 10 customers. You've been taking this manual approach with your marketing. The products clearly resonating with people, you're getting a good response rate. Did you just keep doing more of the same to get to 50, 100 customers? Was it as straightforward as what you experienced with the first 10? What did that trajectory look like as you went beyond the first 10 customers?
1: We carried on doing direct mail. We always have. We still do to this day, but we did branch out into different things. Um, So we started doing industry e-shots through the industry press. We went to the trade shows and exhibited, and we went for very, very different type of branding than every other company at the time. So we really stood out. We were dark branding with what we called Spectre, which was before the James Bond film, (laughs) but people associated that. I don't know if it was a good or a bad thing. We did get a cease and desist letter from um, MGM at one point. Wow. Thank, yeah, thankfully we won that, so it is our really? trade wow. now. Yeah, awesome. yeah, only because here's a tip: we had business insurance that covered our legal fees to fight that. So, thankfully, we were covered and we fought it and we won. So, yeah, we can use Spectre. But yeah, so we did the usual thing: so trade shows, industry e-shops, cold emailing, cold calling. Not that much cold calling, to be honest, but we did a bit of it. I walked into some branches sometimes and just said, "Hey, can to talk to you about a product we've built?" And that worked. So we did a little bit of everything. And then as we got a little bit more sophisticated, one of the most successful marketing campaigns we did was actually we sent boxes to agents, branches. And inside the box, it said the game has changed. And then there was a poker chip. And the poker chip had a unique number on. And we said, head to this and enter in your poker chip number. So they did. And then there was a bespoke page for them. And we'd linked it all up to the areas So they could see all this really Great detailed data about properties on the market in their area, and it's personal to them with their competitors and all this. And it was just like, and that worked really well. We got, we used a marketing company actually who came up with us and came up with that idea for us. And that did get an enormous response.
0: So today you're doing, what did we say, about 800K US, so over 9 million ARR. How long did it take you to get to your first million from when you launched
1: the product? Good question. Probably. A couple of years, I would say. We we had a, I mean, we grew very, very quickly with the exclusivity and the premium price. But after about a year and a half, we reached saturation pretty quickly in terms of, oh, you know, it, it was inevitable and it funded the rapid growth and got us out there in the market. But there came a point where we were like, oh my God, we've now got competitors or copycats coming into the market. And we really are punishing ourselves here because we've limited our growth. So we had to make the really painful decision to get rid of the exclusivity, drop our prices and communicate that to our clients, which obviously was not fun at the time, but it had to be done. And we did it in the best way we could, gave them loads of advance warning, said, this is how much your you know, invoicing is going to come down. This is why we're doing it. And we were really transparent about it You said, there's other people coming into the market trying to do what we're doing. So the exclusivity that we're offering you is only really exclusivity with us where there are other products out there and explained everything and gave them enough warning as possible. And we only lost one client off the back of it. But that obviously meant that in that month when that dropped, our MRR dropped significantly because we dropped our price by about 35%, I think, 40% maybe. So we took a hit uh, on that month, but then obviously it grew very quickly after that going forward. So painful decision at the time, but best thing we ever did.
0: So there are two issues that I had there. One was, this was effectively a new category when you started out. And Mm -hmm. after a couple of years, you're seeing these copycat competitors coming through. Let's talk about that one just a little bit, because some of these were like literally copycat competitors. Yeah.
1: The first one we ever heard, I was actually out for a meal at the time and one of our clients emailed me and it was a really not nice email and said, I can't believe you're charging me for exclusivity, where you've clearly rolled out another product and just changed the colors under a different name. So I was like, what are you talking about? Of course we wouldn't do that. And then he sent me the link to this website and they had literally copied and pasted our, the wording from our website, the look and feel of our website, the screenshots of the software itself. It was laid out identically with the same menu items, literally wow. just different colors. Yeah. And it was one of those moments where you just like, oh my God, who is this? What are they doing? And we just went straight to the lawyers and we were like, is there anything we can do about this? And we got barrister involved and all sorts. So we desperately tried to fight it and we did get some victories. So she had to change um, her wording on the website and she had to change various things, but fundamentally she could carry on doing what she was doing. So that was the first time we were like, obviously people now who are going to try and do the same thing.
0: Yeah. Tell me a little bit about what you went through You know, emotionally, when something like that happens, I think a lot of founders have this fear that what's going to happen with competitors, and especially if you're into a a new market, a new opportunity, a new product category, it's inevitable that it's going to happen at some point. But when it happens, it's still not a very pleasant experience.
1: It was awful. Like, I think every business owners feel this because you do feel things personally and you can't help but let it affect how you feel and your remote, the emotional side of it was, is really tough. I mean, the, there was two things with that. Firstly, I thought, oh my God, our clients are going to think that this is what we're doing because that was the first instance that we'd heard about this other the website. And I was thinking, oh my God, I really hope people don't think that is what we are doing and, and that we lack the integrity of, of actually doing that. Because we'd, we'd actually had approaches by that time from other companies who said look, I'll just buy the data from you, but I'll buy it with my mortgage arm. So you're not selling it to other estate agents and you can just get it around it that way. And I'd, I'd said, well, no, because that's not what we're about. And I understand what you're saying. Technically, yes, we could do that, but that's not who we are. And I remember his exact words and he said, fine, but I think you're being frankly uncommercial. And I, to this day, I remember it because I was like, yeah, but at least I'm acting with you know integrity and whatever. And then this happened and I thought, oh my God, this is major and you he, he can't help but feel it. So you, we probably reacted, anyone would, and it was like, we're going to fight this. We'll go to the lawyers. We'll get it shut down. And then over time, you realize that, no, you can't. you just got to deal with it and compete on your own merits. And whilst our system looked simple from a user interface point of view, in the background, by this point, it was actually a very sophisticated system. And we'd had a good 18 months, two years of learning and developing behind the scenes in terms of the, the integrity of the data and the, the accuracy of the data, which is incredibly important with a product like, like ours. So after a while, you, you know, got used to it and you just thought, we've had so many competitors cut spring up over the years and they come up and then they fade away because it is more complex than it looks from the outside. So I've got used to it now and I don't feel it as personally as I used to, but I definitely did at the time.
0: So this was one sort of dynamic at play here where you've got these competitors coming along. But even if that hadn't happened, I'm guessing at some point growth would have plateaued anyway because offering this exclusivity meant that there was a ceiling that you were going to hit at some point uh, and yeah. you couldn't go, go beyond that. And, and I'm assuming that offering the exclusivity at the beginning was probably because, hey, here's a great way to further incentivize people to be able to charge more of a premium. Was it also because maybe you and Tom were not really sure how big this business could be? So if you could get 100 state agents to sign up, that would have been a great place to be. <laughs>
1: A hundred percent. I think we look back and where we were back then, we thought, is this gonna work? How big could it get? And then we were like thinking, well, if we reach that saturation, God, we'll be laughing, you know. That was a nice problem to have, ha ha ha. And then actually we get so anything actually it is a problem now. So we are gonna have to do something about it. So and I think that's one of the biggest regrets that I think I have, or biggest mistakes that we've made was thinking quite small in the early days because we were bootstrapped, I think, it was our own money. So we were like, we'll target this area first and then we'll grow into this area and this area. In hindsight, we should have gone nationwide and we should have done it straight away and we should have hired people straight away. But we didn't and we were very cautious and considered with our growth. And I would definitely not do that if I was doing it again. And whilst you're one of one, you might as well go big. And yeah, definitely what you've just said, I think is spot on. I think we had a smaller mindset than we should have done. And that's why we had the exclusivity. Would I have not had the exclusivity if I did it again? I'm not sure because it did make us go viral if that makes sense, with very little marketing.
0: Right. So there was scarcity. And it was like, you know, people buying like .dot .com domains. I don't exactly. know if I'll ever use it, but I'll buy it anyway. <laughs> there's a deal here. It was
1: exactly that. Yeah. Which worked really well for us. So pros and cons, I would say. Yeah. But I would definitely have still grown faster if I did it all again. Okay. So,
0: yeah, I want to talk about the growing faster. But when you started to communicate to these people who had bought into this exclusivity, you said you lost one customer. Were people, even the ones that stuck around, were people upset about this? Yeah,
1: we did have some emails back to say that they were disappointed. And this is one of the reasons they signed up. And we just tried to over communicate because we thought we can't shy away from it. We're going to have to hold our hands up here that we are changing. So we wrote basically a letter and um, it was in email, but in the style of a letter signed off by me and Tom. And we just tried to be as transparent as possible. This is why we're doing it. We're now, unfortunately, not the only product in the market, which was a risk in itself. Like we didn't really want to highlight that there were other products coming in, but that was the truth. We weren't an exclusive product anymore. But here's what we're going to do because our, ha- our hand has been forced. We will reduce your price and uh, we hope you can understand. And we're giving you, I think it was three months warning. So if you don't want to continue with us, we totally understand and blah, blah, blah. And then there's only one one client who really spies this dummy out.
0: Okay, so let's go back to what you just said earlier about if I was doing this again, I would have done this a lot faster. Now, Mm -hmm. you bootstrapped this business, you've never raised any money, and you are pretty close to hitting eight figures in terms of 10 million ARR. What do you think you would have done differently to grow faster than you did? Because it doesn't seem to have hurt your business.
1: I think in hindsight, we... We opened or we left the door open for competitors to come in and enter the market because they were thinking, okay, here's this business; it's clearly doing well, but you know they're not everywhere yet, and that's probably quite appealing to people on the sidelines who are looking in. Whereas if we would have, if we had have grown faster and would have just gone for it, recruited faster, spent more marketing, stopped hand signing letters and just done it, and um, I think we could have tied up the market a lot quicker and made it more difficult because there are certain things where people talk about the moat that you get in certain things. And one of those things for us is that the end product of Spectre, the prospecting tool, is, is physical letters and postcards. More letters and postcards that we send, the better the postage rates we get. So, you know, the volumes that we were doing meant that we could pass on enormous savings to agents with their marketing. And we could have made that so difficult for somebody else to come in that actually maybe would have we would have had fewer competitors now. It might not have been the case, but. with what I know now, I would have grown significantly faster, recruited earlier, recruited more, spent more on marketing, and just gone for it.
0: But as you and I were talking about this before we started recording, in hindsight, that's a lot clearer. But when you're in that situation, and it's your own money, it's much harder to actually pull the trigger and, and do those things, right?
1: That's exactly right. And I think there are there are obvious, obviously benefits of bootstrapping and that we've retained all the equity, but that's the downside. When it's your own money, you think about things a lot more and you're a lot more cautious with what you do. And there are downsides to that as well. And, and it is that if there was somebody else's money there early doors, would we have been as cautious? Probably not. We would have just, you know, gone for it. So I think there are pros and cons. And that's was, that was the con of bootstrapping is that you are much more cautious, or we were.
0: Why did you decide that you weren't going to raise any money because potentially the business is in a great place right now bringing in some VC funding could help fuel that growth even faster and maybe you'd mm-hmm. look back in, in another five years time and say, oh maybe I should have you know, grown faster but but what's been the driver for you to stay as a, as a self-funded business instead of going out and raising funding?
1: I think the honest answer is that we've not had that need for the cash because of the way the business is structured, you know monthly recurring revenue paid in advance high margins particularly in the early days we didn't need the cash we we weren't thinking we weren't consciously thinking we're not growing fast enough or, or we would be growing faster if we had more cash so it was never something that we thought we need to do it's not something that I'd say we'd never do and um, it depends on because obviously we've got street as well now which has got enormous potential so I'm not saying we would never ever do it but whilst we haven't had. That burning platform—it isn't something that's been high priority for us. And the other thing is, we've got a great culture. And I'm not saying VCs or PE would change that, but there have been certain advantages to it just being me and Tom running the business in the way we want to run it. And there have been certain times where we've pivoted, and we've changed direction really, really quickly, and that's definitely been an advantage for us. So, for example, that new competitor springing up on the scene, and just and us deciding to get rid of the exclusivity. Um, we were able to do it, make that decision within a day and implement it. Whereas I imagine if we had people that we need to sign off such a fundamental decision with, it would have taken a lot longer. And they might have said, absolutely not, don't do that. There've been other things as well, like in the middle of lockdown, we'd outgrown our office and we desperately needed to find an office that was big enough for us all. So we started looking around offices in Manchester, couldn't find anywhere, eventually found somewhere. was looking at about 15 grand a month rent, ended up having a conversation with the landlord who owns the building that we're in. And he basically said, look, if you buy this building off me before March, because he thought there was going to be a big capital gains tax change coming in, he said, I'll give it you at a discounted rate. And we made what could turn out to be a really bad decision. But at the moment, it feels like a brilliant decision to buy the building that we're in and um, refurbing it, plenty of space for us all and paying less in the mortgage repayments than we would be if we'd have taken the building that we were going to in terms of rent. So you know, things like that, we were able to just make quick decisions. Other things that like we spent a long time last year building a freemium product and we were just about to roll it out. And we thought, sorry, this was the year before last. And we are like, oh, the property market's looking a bit weird. Let's just hold off. And then the property market in the UK has been, I think it's the same in the US, has been crazy for the last 12 months. And thank God we didn't make that decision. So there's just certain things that I think just being me and Tom we've be able to make quick decisions, change direction if we needed to, Buy buildings if we wanted to, that served us quite well. But that's not to say we wouldn't look to raise in the future. We may well do that.
0: So, we talked about the challenges of the competition and the copycats. And we also talked about how some of the difficulties you went through in terms of moving away from this exclusivity to help grow the business and be more competitive as the market changed. As a founder, what was one of the hardest parts of building this business? And a business that's grown pretty rapidly. It was only a few years ago where you hadn't run a business before and now you've got a team, nearly 100 people. So there's been a lot of changes going on there. And what's been one of the biggest challenges for you over the last few years?
1: We've touched on not growing fast enough. I think we've covered that. I think the other thing is, I think we made mistakes along the way, hiring for the tech experience or technical experience in in growing the team where where we prioritize that above whether there'd be a good cultural fit. And I, I guess everybody goes through this and, you know, maybe it's one of those things that you do have to sort of live through and make those mistakes to learn from it. But yeah, picking the right people at early doors, we got really, really lucky uh, with some people, but we made mistakes with others. And then you have to, you know, go through the pain of undoing that. I think the emotional ups and downs for any founder is is always, I mean, the highs and the lows are amazing. The, oh, the highs are amazing. The lows you know, are painful when it's your own business. And things like copycats coming up and competitors entering the market, you just have to get used to it. But you know, every time you do feel it a little bit, I'd say those are the hardest things.
0: So one other question in, in terms of product strategy, we often hear you know, founders focus, the one thing, all of that stuff. And you guys decided we're going to build effectively three products. So one, like, why do that? Why not focus on one thing? And then secondly, why are they even marketed as three products? Why isn't it just one Uber product that does all of the things that, that you offer today?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really valid question. And I think truthfully, we have made mistakes with certain things here because Spectre grew and it grew really quickly. And the first product that we then started to, the, the second product we started to make with Spectre Letting. So the first product was all to do with sales market. And then one of our biggest clients, in fact, the biggest client we had at the time and a very well-known top end of the market estate agent said to us, why have you only built this for sales? We want it for our lettings team. And we, we feel like lettings is always like the forgotten child of estate agency. And we'll help you build it if you build it. So they forced our hand with that one because they offered us a time with their director of lettings to shape what this product would look like. And so that's how the second product, Spectre Lettings, came into being. And that, again, like one of the best things we've ever done because it's a different market. We had the sales market and then we developed this product for the lettings market with help for one of the best agents in the country. And that worked very well. So that was natural. But we did make other mistakes. You know, we made the mistake of trying to launch a product into a different industry because we had this data that we knew was really valuable and we were only selling it to estate agents, basically. Whereas we thought, actually, there's loads of other industries that that would get enormous value from this. So we set up this new product, we had a different name, we hired different people, and it was just it just didn't work anywhere near as well. Massive diversion of our time, massive distraction, and waste of time ultimately. So we did make mistakes along the way as well. Then we we did another product called Hello Again, which was all about helping agents keep in contact with their past purchases, so getting repeat business basically launched that, should have been massive. It was a brilliant product and it worked really, really well, but just didn't grow anywhere near as how we how we expected it to. So we then made the decision to move that product into Spectre sales and just have it as a new feature in Spectre sales. But again, if we'd have done that from the off, we'd have saved a lot of time, marketing effort, expense, admin, blah, blah, blah. So we did make mistakes. But then one of the biggest things that we basically, in this industry, there's lots of little prop tech suppliers that have you know, grown up in the last 10 years that are solving niche independent problems for estate agents. And Spectre is one of those things. But over time, and this is almost from day one, me and Tom were getting increasingly frustrated that there was no one or innovating in the space of the software that they're actually using to run their business on a day-to-day basis. And that's when we made the decision to start to build Street, which was an enormous investment. It took us three years. This is another benefit of bootstrapping, by the way, because if we'd have gone to a VC or a PE and said, hey, we've got this product, it's doing really well, it's growing really fast. But actually, what we want to do is sink three years into building a new product that's going to cost us millions of pounds. Can we do that? That I imagine most of them would have been like, no, absolutely not. Stick to what you're doing. But we just saw that the future was that somebody has got to take the space and build a product that's fit for today and tomorrow. And if you looked at the incumbents, they they hadn't innovated for a long time. So we made that decision. We started to build street.co.uk for agents, which, build, which makes them incredibly more efficient. It's modern technology with an open API, so it can plug into all the other prop tech suppliers if we want. Um, but crucially, it also has an interface for the consumer, so it makes moving a lot easier for home movers as well as for estate agents. So you can log in, you can do the things and see the things that you would want to do when you're moving house, which, let's face it, is quite a daunting prospect for most people because it's a big thing. So actually having some transparency and help and guidance through that process and being able to do things online is, I don't want to say game changer because it's overused, but it it is a game-changer for this industry because it's not been done before. So it was a massive project for us to do, but naturally we've launched it and it's gone down incredibly well. So that's growing really quickly. And the power of Street, the CRM and the property software with the marketing tool Spectre is, is amazing. It's like HubSpot. Where you've got your CRM and your marketing in one tool, but it's this, but for estate agents and specifically for this industry. So that's why we did it. And yeah, we have made mistakes with certain products along the way, but other products have, have done really, really well.
0: And I think it goes back to where we started this conversation, which was where you said this idea of being an independent thinker—that sometimes not following conventional wisdom and instead following your intuition or your gut and what you believe is the right opportunity, even if everybody tells you you're crazy or what the hell are you doing? Maybe that's often the right way forward, but it's it's always hard to innovate if we're just doing what everybody else is doing.
1: I, I honestly think there's not many industries left where pretty much everyone can identify the pain in in this industry and how painful it is to move or to rent or to go through that process. You don't normally find somebody who says, yeah, I had a really nice, easy moving experience. And unfortunately, I think estate agents get a lot of the, the flack for that. But actually, they, they often don't deserve it. Sometimes they do. I'm not saying all of them are perfect, but a lot of them are trying to do this with very old technology. I mean, on-premise tech that is like looking at some sort of 80s submarine, whereas what we're doing is introducing modern technology that the consumer loves. It guides them through the process. You get that transparency. You get the help doing what you want to do. And I think there's a genuine opportunity to make a difference in an entire industry, but also for every single person that ever has to buy or rent or let. sell so yeah it's exciting
0: Uh, yeah i I remember when we sold our place in in london back in 2000 i don't think anything was happening over email or online it's mind-blowing that it's it's an industry that's kind of lagged for so long
1: it has and i think one of the reasons for that is because who is going to build this technology for estate agents it's it's complicated you do need to understand the industry And there's lots of parts to it. You know, you don't just have the estate agency part. You have the whole sales progression part through to sell, which is complex. So, you know, other than us, where we had the luxury of having a profitable product and all the relationships with estate agents and a good reputation in the industry, it it would be very difficult for somebody outside of the industry to come in and say, hey, I'm unknown, but I've built this product. So estate agents, do you want to trust me and put your entire business on it? Because they'd turn around and say, absolutely not. Who are you? And then within the industry, who would have had the luxury of spending three years and millions of pounds building a product to the point where it it was ready? Because in tech, with Spectre, we definitely had an MVP and a minimum viable product. But with Street, we couldn't do that. We, We said it had to be a minimum lovable product because you couldn't have issues with the software that estate agents use all day, every day that is absolutely mission critical for what they're doing. So we did have to take our time with it and we had to get it perfect. So we recognize that opportunity. We recognize that there we're very few people who could come in and actually build this and genuinely make a difference to this industry. But we had that platform. So we decided to take it on.
0: Awesome. And on that note, I think we should uh, wrap up and get onto the lightning round. So I've got yeah, go seven it. quick fire questions for you. Just try to answer them okay. as quickly as you can. Okay. What's the best piece of business advice you've ever received?
1: Read books. Read lots of books. Why learn from your own mistakes when you can learn from somebody else's? Definitely, definitely do that.
0: What book would you recommend to our audience and why?
1: Best sort of people management book I've ever read is Radical Candor. I'd recommend that to anyone. Really, really good in terms of how to manage people, how to talk to them and get the most out of them. From a SaaS point of view, Predictable Revenue, God, that helped us loads in the early days. And there's still some principles of that that we follow today. So yeah, those would be my big two.
0: What's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful founder?
1: I think striving for the next thing. So you're never happy with what you've got. You're looking for the next idea and the next opportunity. You know, don't, you can't ever be happy with standing still. You've always got to be thinking about the next thing.
0: What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habits? I
1: think I've tried every single productivity tool there is going. And I always come back to a physical to-do list. But one thing my mentor told me that I've used and it's stuck with me is, have a column on your to-do list where every morning you scan down the to-do list and literally write the initials of who you can delegate any of those things to and do it and, you you know, delegate because I think that's one of the biggest issues I have is I would just not delegate and that's exactly what I did. Um, So physical to-do list, but a little delegation column.
0: What's a new or crazy business idea you'd love to pursue if you had the extra time?
1: Oh, do you know, I... This is actually a really stupid one, but um, it used to really annoy me when I used to go out and uh, I get red wine stains on my teeth. So I started doing some research into, you know, could I I come up with a product that would get rid of tannin stains on your teeth? And I did, I I developed it. This is when I was in uni. And then when I was in Japan a few years ago, I saw that they are a thing. So I'd like to bring those things (laughs) to the UK. They're called the wine ones.
0: Love it. What's an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know?
1: Uh, I would say that I used to play for Manchester United girls team. Most people don't expect that. Wow! wow.
0: <laughs> yeah, you, you've got you've got some interesting facts there, like the MGM thing, and uh, that, that that was a pretty fun one as well. And and finally, what's one of your most important passions outside of your work?
1: I think the biggest passion I have is actually learning. I love reading business books, any sort of books so where I can learn from other people. I think that has become my passion over time, which might be a bit sad, but. It's true, unfortunately, learning new things and implementing them.
0: Love it. All right, Heather, thank you so much for, for joining me today and sharing your story. I think there's a lot that's happened over the last six years of building this business. I think it's also really useful for people to hear how you've gone on this journey and some of the, the non-conventional things that you've tried and not following conventional advice in terms of how you build the business. I think that's really always useful for uh, a lot of people who maybe just need to think a little bit differently to get that next breakthrough. So, so thank you for sharing those lessons with us. If people want to find out more about Street Group and all your products, they can go to streetgroup.co.uk. Is that the best yep. place to send people to?
1: Yeah, and you can see all of our products from there.
0: Right. And if folks want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Just Heather at street.co.uk.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much, uh, Heather. Thank you for uh, having me. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. And uh, I wish you and the team the best of success.
1: Cheers. Really enjoyed it. Thank you.